just had to fit in a couple of hiking pictures. Fortunately, we didn't have any of those. We didn't have any of those foggy mornings. We thought, you know, maybe in the morning it might be foggy like that. And we'd have our own picture of our own own crew slogging along, not being able to see where we were going. But we had just a beautiful, gorgeous day. But but life can be like that. Life is like that. In fact, I I I I, I had as a title this morning. And even put it up on the, on the signboard out in front. I don't like to really do these cutesy things that you see a lot of times on church signboards. Sometimes I think we just get a little too cute by half. And, and, um, but uh, I thought that would be intriguing. This, uh, there will be trouble Sunday, 1030. Well, actually for some of you, trouble was probably at home at about 9 a.m. or or, or 8.30 rather than 10.30. There was trouble between when you got up and when you got here, and for somebody it may have even pre- prevented them from being here this morning. There will be trouble, won't there? We can count on that. We know that's true. We know that so there will be trouble. There's trouble in your lives. I know that. Some of it I know specifically, some bits you've told me about. Others I don't know. Except I know that there is trouble. And there will be trouble. In fact, God tells us there will be trouble. There will be steep climb. One of the things about our hiking these last couple of days is, is the part I hated the worst was going down to go up. You know, you know that if you're starting at 4,600 feet and you're going to get to 6,500 feet, you know you've got almost 2,000 feet to climb, right? But it's more than that because you climb up a bit and then you go down 100 or two. And then you get to go up again, that same hundred or two plus more. So it's terrible even to go down if you're only going down to go up. And life sometimes feels like that. If we just see a bit of the trail rather than the end of the trail. And yet God has set before us the end of the trail and it makes all the difference. There was a well-known Austrian psychiatrist. His name was Viktor Frankl. And he survived the Nazi death camp, Auschwitz. And he said he had this, he, 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 he summarized his experiences in this fairly well-known statement. Man's search for meaning is the primary motivation in this life. Man's search for meaning is his primary motivation. Is there any meaning to the trouble? Because if there is, I can carry on. I can keep doing, keep going. And those that survived the death camps in his experience were those that had a future hope. Those who did not give up, those who refused to abandon hope, who held on to a larger meaning in their suffering. There must be something more than this. And those that knew there was something more, those were the ones that could endure. Those were the ones that did not despair. We want to um, consider this morning that even though there will be trouble, how will we endure through the trouble? And Peter, in this study in 1 Peter, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9 this morning. We're taking a slow walk through the book of Peter. 
And uh, in, this, in this morning, we'll, we're going to be in verses 6 to 9 of chapter 1. And uh, you'll find that if you're using a pew Bible, and um, either you, you have a Bible you brought with you, you have it on your phone, or you have a tablet, or you have a Bible in front of you in the pews, and you'll find us there on page uh, 1014. And it's just good to have the text in front of you. I want you to see what God has said. I don't, I don't want you to only hear what, what um, um, he has given me to share this morning. I want you to see his word for yourself right there, right there in front of you. Because God has made us promises, and he's, and, he's, and he's reminded us of how to get through the troubles that we will face. There will be trouble, and yet he has given us hope. So let me read verses 6 to 9. Actually, I'm going to back up a little bit. I'm going, to, I'm going to start from verse 3 for a reason because we're actually going to look back into that as we go forward. So from verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's kept, it's reserved, preserved in heaven for you, cannot be lost or taken away, who are also being kept by the power of God, guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. We don't see it yet. We haven't experienced it yet, but it's, it's about to be revealed. It's about to be unfolded. And so he gets to verse 6. In this you rejoice. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, even though it is tested by fire, the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Father, thank you for the reminder for us to look upward, to cast our gaze further by faith, to, to see your promise, to keep that before us, in the midst of the present difficulties. Father, would you strengthen us in these eyes of faith this morning? Would you put our focus, Lord, above the present trouble onto your promise that we might all the more both know you here and glorify you in the midst? We ask that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So he says that we are rejoicing in God's promise, first of all. We are rejoicing in God's promise. He says, in this you rejoice, and the this points back. It doesn't just point back to the last words before, but it points back to all of that, verses 3 to 5. That whole, whole together, that whole nutshell of, of what God has done for us. That God has caused us to be born again. It's to a living hope. It's, it's through the resurrection. Not even, not even the grave itself can scare us. Because we have a hope that goes beyond the grave. It's eternal in the heaven. There, there's an inheritance from God himself that is for us. And we are kept by God himself for it. That God has a plan and a future. And the best and most glorious of intentions for you. And sometime today it doesn't feel like it. But you don't rejoice in the today. 
You don't rejoice in this, you rejoice in that. You rejoice in God's promise and all that he has done and because of what he has done, will do. In this, you rejoice. Now, there's actually a lot of discussion because it doesn't look like that in English, but in, in Greek, you could read this one of two ways. You could read this as, in this you do rejoice or in this you should rejoice. It can be read as a statement of fact. It can be read as a command. It's kind of fun, that, funny that Greek does that sometimes, and maybe it's simply for this. Maybe it's simply so that those who are rejoicing are affirmed in it. Keep looking up. And if you're not, shift your gaze higher. Look up into that hope. Rejoice there. Maybe there's just a subtle encouragement to lift our gaze a little bit, that we are, have been chosen, that we have, we, have, we, we have a hope that will be fully realized in the revelation of Jesus, the, the unveiling, the fully seeing of Jesus himself. We rejoice in God's promise. And we rejoice in God's promise, although. We rejoice in God's promise that says, even though, not only do we not see it, but we seem to see or experience or taste and feel the exact opposite of what the promise is. We have, we have been promised blessing, and yet we find difficulties. We have been promised joy, and yet in the present we find sorrow, and we grieve. We are grieved, it says, with various trials. And something, a, a, a fair criticism of the evangelical church is that we don't grieve enough. We don't grieve things we ought to grieve. There is much to grieve in the present. And yet we do not grieve, First Thessalonians says, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve with hope. We grieve in hope. And it makes all the difference. It looks beyond the grave into the rapture and into heaven itself and into the presence of God. In the midst of these troubles, we, we, we rejoice in God's promise through temporary troubles. Though now, even though everything in your experience tells you otherwise, everything that you know and have experienced in life just by what happens tells you there is not ultimate joy in life is meaningless. Ecclesiastes is right. It's all emptiness. It's all vanity. I tried to find fulfillment and couldn't. The writer in Ecclesiastes describes all the different ways we look for meaning and fulfillment and cannot find it. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is right unless we follow his words at the end of his book that says, remember then your creator in the days of your youth. You see, your meaning is not found in the creation. It is found in the creator himself. Though now, even though everything tells you otherwise, there's no reason to rejoice except in God's promise, then rehearse, fill up on, remind yourself of God's promise. One of the reasons we gather and we continue to gather week after week, we do this. Why do we do this? Why do we sing what we sing? Why do we, why do we again look into God's word? Why do we hear what we hear? We do all of this. Why do we come again to this table to remind ourselves of what it is that Jesus has done for us, not merely all of us, but individually, personally received? We do that to remind ourselves of the promise. We do that to remind one another of the promise. You need to be reminded, and the person next to you needs to be reminded of what is true 
that is contrary to our though now experience. Though now for a little while, if necessary, for a little while. I think I said before, what if this life is not your story? What if this life is the prologue? The story that God is, is preparing us and building us up for, the story is an eternity. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise and to live it out. Heaven won't just be singing. I know Evan's big on the singing part. He's got the choir organized for heaven. But there's more than that, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Knowing and living with and in the true and living God, that is our future. And it is unending. And this is just the prologue for that. More about that as we go. But in comp for a comparatively little while, and some of you are going through some stuff that hasn't seemed a little while, it seemed like a long road. It's not an easy road we're traveling to glory, the old quartet sang. Sometimes it's a very steep climb. In fact, we were hiking, I won't say who, but a couple of the guys, we went up this one place. It was called Hawkeye. And it was the highest point that we went to. And it was from up there, you could see a view everywhere, but not everybody got to the top because it's a steep climb. And yet it was beautiful. But it's a steep climb, and it doesn't seem like a short climb, what you're going through right now, does it? It doesn't seem like a little while. It doesn't seem, and yet, comparatively speaking, this can't last long. One of those phrases you can grab hold of in the Bible, it came to pass. It didn't come to stay. It came to pass. He says, for a little while, if necessary. What does that tell you? If necessary. By, by, by whose measure? By God's. God has a purpose here. God is doing something. So even the troubles, Paul says, the, these present sorrows are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. God is doing something. And so, if necessary, now let me, let me break that down. There are three kinds of ifs in Greek. There are three kinds of conditionals. You know, if this, then that. There are three kinds. One of them is assumed to be true. You could almost read it as since. Since it is necessary. Another one is a genuine maybe. Uh, if, and maybe it is, maybe it's not. So you kind of like that one better. Maybe it'll be necessary, but huh, maybe it won't be. Maybe I can get on through all this mess and there will not be any sorrow for me. Good luck with that. The third possible if in Greek, which doesn't occur very often, is if, if this was true, although it's, we understand it's not true. If that were the case, which it isn't. So if it were necessary, but it really isn't. Now you were way over into prosperity messages, right? Uh, no, 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 no. Sorrows? No, not at all. This is the first kind. This is the if necessary, and it is. It's that kind of Greek conditional. So that's the good news, isn't it? If it is necessary, but it's necessary, it's not random. Okay? It's not that this world and your life in it are out of control and just spinning along on its own, and, there, and God's going to grab you out of it at some point, but until then, you're just on your own, and it's random. You never know what's going to happen. God does know. Any of it is necessary, is being used, even though we can't see it, it is being used for God's purposes, all right? 
Let me give you an example of that, the best known example out there, the one you're, you've, you've heard about, you've heard about the troubles of Job. We read the first couple of chapters and we get it already and we're saying, come on, Job, stick with it. Come on, Job, don't lose sight. Give Job a break, would you? Don't be so hard on Job. He didn't get the first two chapters. He jumps right into the middle of the, of the, of the test and the troubles and the losing all of, his, all of his livestock, all of his livelihood, and then he loses his own family. God takes all of his children that he'd just been praying for, by the way, Yet God takes his children and leaves his wife. And we know that she wasn't a terrible help to him along the way. She says, why don't you just curse God and kill yourself? <laughs> she wasn't a great, we, we need to be much better help to one another, okay? We gather together to encourage one another and to pro- provoke one another to good deeds. All right, that's why we gather. Okay, so, but, but Job... Here is all this is happening, and Job himself wants to, wants to see God, wants to be face to face, because he knows he has lived upright before him. He knows he, he hasn't done the kind of things that these consequences should fall on him. What he doesn't know is there's something much bigger than Job going on. Could it be that the universe does not, resolve, does not revolve around me? Could it be that there's something bigger going on than my convenience and my comfort? Could it be that, as in the case of Job, that there's something being shown before all of heaven? We're going to come back to that thought next week. So hold on to that idea, okay? You've got to bring it back with you. You probably need to jot it down on something. If you're like me, you will not remember otherwise next week. Oh, that's that's too long. But but Job didn't know that, that there was this challenge from the enemy And all of heaven is watching and seeing Job's stubborn faithfulness even when nothing in his experience tells him that God is being faithful to him. And yet he sticks with it. And God, in fact, never gives him the the bigger picture. God just shows him more of himself, and that is enough. But imagine Job says at one point, almost in despair, he says, Oh, that my words were written in a book. He had no idea. This was not merely for heaven. It was not merely to answer the enemy at that time. This was so that you and I could look back on Job and say there's more to it than that. You and I could look back on that experience and that would help us make sense out of this experience. You see it? Job didn't know. And you and I don't know. You don't know how your stubborn faithfulness Your determination that I'm going to trust God, I'm going to look forward, even when everything in my present experience screams against it, I'm going to trust God anyway. You don't know the ripples and the effect that will have into the future. Generations beyond you. And certainly in this coming week. You don't know, but it does. That's one of the things the book of Job teaches. One of the things that... For a little while, if necessary, troubles are purposeful. God is sovereign. Don't despair. Not only don't despair, but as you're grieved by various trials, don't compare. Somebody else doesn't have the same trouble you do. That's okay. They've got their own trouble. Even if they're saying, how are you doing? Oh, fine. I'm good. Everything's wonderful. Really? Yeah. No, it's not. They may not tell you, but trust me, they have grief too. They have trouble also. You may think God's not being fair because of what he's dumped on me and it didn't happen to them, but don't despair. And don't compare. Various troubles, various, they come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, don't they? 
Ah, just like people. And yet, and yet, Peter's going to use that word again. He's going he's to get all the way to chapter 4, about verse 10, and he's going to talk about our being good stewards of the various or manifold or many-faceted or multicolored graces of God. The God has gifted people differently in the church. You know what that told me when I considered from one end to the other? It told me that the ways, one of the ways that we meet these various troubles is by the various or the many-faceted grace of God that is found together in the body of Christ. Again, we need each other. We were not meant to run this solo. We were not meant to hike alone into the wilderness. We were meant to go with others. We are meant to continue with others. We are meant to then uphold one another by the various grace that's found throughout the body. Different people can lift you up or provoke you or call you out or challenge you or comfort you or weep with you. Different ways in different situations and circumstances. In different ways, they're able to comfort you with the same comfort that they might have received in a similar affliction. Not everybody, but but there is shared grief in this room. There's shared grief in this body. So one of the things I want you to expect out of church, one of the things I want you to expect out of your experience here at Brush Prairie is that this will be a place where not only will there be people experiencing various griefs, but there will be people with various grace. And when I come to church, what will it be for? Will it be merely to receive? Will it be to, to see what I get out of it? Go ahead, I dare you, try to teach me something new. Or will it be that I come because I'm a carrier of God's grace? I'm a steward of God's grace, and I will come knowing that that grace is meant for somebody in this body this morning. Somebody needs something that God has given me. And I'm going to come together in the body of Christ seeking of how I can share that, encourage somebody in the midst of the temporary troubles of life. So that the proven genuineness of your faith... In the midst of these troubles, which are not without purpose, their purpose is that the proven genuineness of your faith will result in glory and honor and praise. That's the purpose. Now, as we, as we read in that section from the end of verse 6, let me go back there and find it again. Be grieved by various trials. Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith... And there's a little dash in my Bible that picks up, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that which is to come when Jesus comes and we see him as he is. But in the meantime, the, the proven genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it be proven by fire. The proven genuineness of your faith. In the midst of temporary troubles, one of the things that God is doing is he's proving, he's demonstrating the genuineness of your faith. And Peter goes to a gold imagery here. There's something very valuable. It's gold. Through the ancient world, even into today, pure gold is valuable. And it is purified or it is shown to be pure. By melting it down, by applying fire, about 2,000 degrees. And at 2,000 degrees, the gold melts. And because gold is denser than most other elements, anything else in the gold rises to the top and can be skimmed away 
tossed off to the side or maybe saved in another receptacle because then they would, again, purify that further. But, but it's heated again. And, and again, more things are allowed to rise to the surface because the gold is heavier and, and, and sinks down and anything else floats up in it. And all of these impurities that might have been in the gold, they're, 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 they rise to the surface where they can be seen and they can be skimmed away. And when I read this illustration first many years ago, it was said that, that the goldsmith knew when the gold was really pure, when he looked into that, well, what is it called? The crucible. That's where we get that word. The crucible, that little granite bowl that, that withstands the heat so it holds the gold. And when he looks into that crucible and he sees the clear reflection of his own faith, without any other dross hiding the view. God is doing his perfecting work in us. And even through suffering, Paul said, oh, my goal is to know him. Even in the midst of his sufferings, to join in the fellowship of his sufferings that I might know him. Could it be that even in the midst of trouble, that's where we know him most deeply and dearly. And that then, in the midst of those troubles, we enter into something of the sufferings of Jesus himself and more of the likeness of Christ might be seen in us. What is more valuable than gold? Gold is, is the most valuable thing that you can hold on to in this life. And yet he says, more valuable than gold that perishes, even though it's tested by fire. And your faith is also tested by the fires of troubles, and yet your faith will endure even where gold will not. Think about that. The most valuable thing you can accomplish with this life is that testing, that proving by gold. Gold is more valuable than everything else. Didn't Jesus talk about faith and faithfulness? When he, when, he, when he gave a couple of parables, Matthew 25, Matthew, or rather Matthew 25, Luke 19, he talked about the giving of talents to different people or the, or the giving of minas. And, and he and would give a certain amount and, and those who were faithful would use that that they were given. And it would increase, it would grow. And the one who wasn't faithful would just bury it away and hide it. And, and the one who, who, who took the five and made it into ten... He was given, he says, Jesus' words to him, you have been faithful in little. I will give you charge over much. So the sense that our, our future responsibility, our future capacity is being built now in our faithfulness. Where does faithfulness come from? Faithfulness comes out of, this isn't difficult, faithfulness comes out of faith. This life and this life only is our opportunity to live by faith. Think of it. The day will soon come when our opportunity to live by faith will be gone, will be past. We will see him. We will no longer live by faith in his promise. We will live in the realization and the experience of that promise. At this time, in the present, now is our opportunity to grow in our capacity to know God by faith and to trust him, to know and trust his character, even though we don't see it yet. That's the point he gets on to when he says, though now, 
You have not seen him. You're not like the apostles. Well, the apostles saw him in his death and then in his resurrection. You have not seen him, and yet, yet you love him. You do not see him at present. Jesus is not, has, has never come and visited you in your home. You've never sat down with him for dinner. You've never been able to ask those questions you can't wait to get to heaven and ask. You haven't been able to do that yet. You do not see him now, and yet you believe. And you receive then as the outcome of your faith. Because now is your time to live by faith, you are receiving. In fact, I like the NIV or the Net Bible translation here better than the the ESV because they make that present tense all the more clear. You, You now are receiving or you are attaining, the Net Bible says, presently the outcome of your faith. God is doing his purifying work and even in the present, he is is strengthening you, growing you into that capacity that you will bring into eternity. If I will not walk with God by faith in eternity, today is my only chance. Today is my only chance. This life, these days are the only opportunity to grow in my capacity to trust God for what I don't yet see. That's what's going on in this life. This life is limited. This life is rare. And so this life is very valuable and not to be treated lightly and not to be despaired of and say, I just want to die and go to be with Jesus because then I cut off any remaining opportunity that I have to trust him still. And some of you are getting older. I've noticed I'm getting older too. I notice that more closely. As we get older, sometimes do we dare say, Lord, why don't you just take me? And the answer, he says, why don't you just trust me? And that there is our lingering chance to grow in trusting him when our experience cries out against him. And as we take that step of faith still, We are growing muscles of faith that we will use in eternity. And being more faithful, more full of faith here, we will have grown into capacity to be used by and experience relationship with God at a deeper level into the future. That's what God is doing in the present. We are receiving that as the outcome of our faith, this salvation, the ongoing saving, and I would say even transformation, growing of our souls. One of the things we do with this table is we step into faith. We believe God in the midst of trouble because our God stepped into trouble for us. The greatest trouble of this life, the greatest risk, it seems, the greatest danger that we face is death itself. And yet our Jesus entered there. And we remind ourselves of that at this table, that the innocent one died. And yet that was for a purpose. It wasn't random, was it? What God does, he does for a purpose. He did this for a purpose. He did this so that each one could receive, each one could believe, and exercise faith. That first step of faith, I believe you, God, that you sent Jesus to die into death for me. You did that for me. I believe that. And so then, If I will 
trust God there. And then I begin to grow. And I begin to continue to trust God in the midst of life. And what else am I trusting him for at this table? As long as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death for us until he comes. Until he is revealed. And then my faith will be sight. I invite you to join us at this table if you have believed in Jesus as the one who died for you. I'm going to ask those, those who are serving to come forward at this time. And as we, as, we, as we approach the table, I want you to be thinking, maybe for yourself, maybe for someone close to you, someone near to you, someone dear to you, who is going through trouble. Trouble that would rock the soul. Trouble that would threaten faith. And there's a song that is going to be sung for us because sometimes we need somebody else to sing for us. So this gives us a chance to reflect on God's truth as we hear it. To remind that in the midst of storms and trouble to be still my soul. That the winds and waves, the storms on your sea, the winds and waves still know the voice of him who ruled them when he was below. Yeah, we can trust him. We can trust him with our own eternity. And we can then trust him for temporary troubles.